Today's reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 25. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our, with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Thanks, Steve. Um, Let's open in prayer. Lord, what a glorious section of scripture. What a tremendous promise that you're extending to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we study this to understand what you're saying, to believe what you're saying, and Lord, to trust that what you're saying will come to pass for us, and that would shape how we behave, how we think, how we approach life in general. Uh, Father, we want to pray for uh, the fires that are burning in uh, California even now. Lord, would you be with the firefighters and the leaders who have to deal with that? and help them to figure out the best way to uh, handle the fires. Lord, we pray for the people who've been um, dislodged by the fires. Lord, would you surround them with people who who help, people who uh, can provide for them and and survive uh, the fire, not just um, by the skin of their neck, but Lord, that there might be um, hope shared in the the face of the disaster, Lord. Uh, So be at work in those people, we pray. Um, Father, we pray for our country as we're continuing to experience uh, civil unrest. Um, And Lord, there's uh, uh, violence involved from uh, both sides of the argument. And Lord, it just is not, it's not pretty. It's not uh, the way a civilization uh, should be conducting their affairs. So Lord, would you grant our leaders um, great wisdom and great care in how to handle the the unrest? Maybe the answer isn't always putting it down with force. Uh, Maybe the answer is not always capitulating to it. Maybe there's times when you have to listen and act. And so, Lord, um, whatever the right decision is, we pray and we trust that you will give it to our leaders, that they may um, 
do what Lord your word says, which is you establish these governments to uh, maintain peace and to reward those who do good and punish those who do bad. So Lord, um, give them clarity of insight to do those things. And Father, along those same lines, we pray for our upcoming election. Um, Lord, the, um, the history of the world has not been predominated by uh, the populace electing leaders. It has been uh, kings and despots and rulers and strongmen. And so, Lord, we're blessed to live in this country and in this time when we have a choice in who will lead our nation. And, uh, Father, we know that you raise up rulers and you bring them down. You, you build up countries and you destroy them. Um, and, Lord, it's all according to your purpose. It's all in hope. Um, and so, Lord, as we approach this election year, I pray that you would um, be doing those things in us. Lord, that the, the purpose of America would be to glorify you um, in whatever way that is. Uh, so, Lord, for your church as she dwells here as pilgrims, as aliens, as ambassadors, Lord, I pray that we would be good citizens of this nation with the eye towards our citizenship in heaven. And so, uh, Lord, help your church to be a solid and a continual witness in this nation. And, uh, and I pray by your mercy that you may extend to us once more a peaceful transition of power as uh, the election comes to a close. So be with us in those things we ask. And now, Lord, again, as we turn to your word, Holy Spirit, this is your word. You wrote it. You intended for the church to hear it and to trust it and to believe it. And so, Lord, would you be with us to that end? And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So um, chapter eight is one of those parts of scripture that is just so beautiful and so filled with hope. And I hope you heard that as Steve was reading it for us this morning. There was just so much in here. Um, and I would love to just maybe preach this chapter about four or five times to mine all the things out of it. But uh, we're going to press through it once and we'll have to kind of pick our way. We're at this point in, in especially if you look at Romans overall, we're at this pivot point. Um, Paul, up until this point, has really been talking about our need for salvation and how we're saved. Um, and he keeps going back to that, that point that we need to be saved, and that's by grace. So last week, what we saw was uh, we saw how we are engaged in this battle uh, between the flesh and the spirit, and that um, we have hope, we have tools to win that battle, but it's still the fact that our bodies are not redeemed. And what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see the beginning here, the first verse or so, is still going to deal with that theme, but then it's going to make a sudden pivot. And the good news is where we're transitioning into is the promise of why fight the battle, why be engaged in it, and what's it worth. So what we'll see in, in uh, verses 12 through 17 is how we are heirs of God, because it's really the theme is that we're heirs of God. And then what we'll see in, in verses 18 through 25 is what we're heirs of. And, and that's tremendous good news as well. So let's take a look here. Verse uh, 12 starts with, so then. And that so then means that Paul is taking something he said, and at this point he's saying, this is the implications of it. This is what this means. So what I think he's getting at is he's looking back um, probably to all of chapter 8, but at least uh, very specifically to eight, chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So from verse 9 through really verse 11, that was what he had been talking about. And so when he says here, so then, he's saying, 
that's the truth. That's what's going on is, is you live in the flesh, but you're not of the flesh. Um, you live in the flesh, but you're of the spirit. And so you have this struggle between what the spirit wants and what the flesh wants. So then, brothers, and, and so what he's doing now is he's taking us to the implications of that. You are not, he says, we are debtors not to the flesh. Um, what I think he's saying here, you'll notice he says, we are debtors. He states it in a positive way and never, never tells us what we're debtors to. So he says, we're debtors, but not to the flesh. So the implication is, well, we're debtors to the spirit um, because that's the context, contrast that he's been drawing. And so some people would say, well, Paul started on this thought and then never finished it. He got carried away into this other thing. And that's entirely possible. But I have a feeling that the Holy Spirit was saying, now, hold on for a second, Paul. You are not debtors to the flesh. That's true. But you're not debtors to me either because you can never repay me. There's no way that you could pay the debt that you're owed. And where the reason I say that is because where Paul goes in the rest of the section is he doesn't speak of us as debtors. He speaks of us in a much better, a much more glorious position. Uh, so... When we read this, you could infer that we are debtors to the Spirit, but I don't think that's what the Scripture intends us to do. What he says is we are debtors, but not to the flesh. So in other words, when the flesh starts doing what the flesh is going to do, we don't owe it anything. We owe it nothing. Now, what does he mean by the flesh? Again, I quoted John Murray, I think, last week, and I just think he defines it really well. He says, the flesh is the complex of sinful desire motive, affection, principle, and purpose. And to life after the flesh is to be, or to live after the flesh is to be governed and directed by that complex. So when he says uh, we are not debtors to the flesh, he's saying we are not indebted to sinful desires, motives, affections, principles, purposes. That's not what we owe. So what happens is our spirits have been renewed, our bodies are not. Our bodies are still wanting to go in a certain direction. And when the sin shows up, when pride starts welling in us, or when uh, jealousy begins to, to, to boil up because they have something we don't, or uh, when lust starts rearing its head, what we have to remind ourselves is when those things come up, I, we could look it right in the face and say, I owe you nothing. You can't demand this from me because I don't owe you anything. Um, if we live according to the flesh, we will die, is what he tells us in the next verse. So what we have to remember is when we're in the struggle, when we're in the battle, we do not owe the flesh any satisfaction, because if we satisfy it, we're going to die. But, in verse 13, right in the middle, he says, but, and that is really the big pivot point in this epistle. This is where he swings from the bad news of we have to wrestle against the flesh and sin is always barking at our door and that kind of stuff. But the great news is you have been justified by faith. You have been filled with the spirit and you have been set free from the domain of Adam and moved into the domain of Christ. So, but if you live by the spirit, oh, if, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here's the good news. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, which means by the Spirit you may put to death the deeds of the body. It's not by the deeds of your will or the deeds of your desire, but it is a spiritual battle. 
And so by the Spirit, because of the Spirit, because of the work of the Spirit, by the Spirit, you put to death those deeds of the body, then you'll live. Um, so this is, this is really great news, is, is we've been told when the, when the flesh wants to do its thing, we can tell it, we owe you nothing. You, you can't demand that of me. And then by the power of the Spirit, we can put to death those deeds. We can war against it. Notice we don't put to death the flesh. Um, we're going to find out more about what happens to the flesh in a little bit, but the, the, the effort that we put in is to put to death those deeds. Um, and then we will live. That's what life is. That's what it means to actually be alive, is to, to resist that sin and to live according to the Spirit. So verse 14, he starts with another four. I, I didn't point this out, but I want to point it out now. There are three places in here where he says four. Verse 13, 14, and 15 all begin with that, that important word for. And so what he's doing is he's stringing together an argument. So then, because that's true, for, and here's a reason, for, here's a reason, here's a reason. So once we go through those, I'll go back and kind of draw those together for us, okay? So verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Um, that, that seems like it's saying the same thing. If you're led by the Spirit, you're a son of God. But it's not. It's, it's promising something much better. Um, we can be led by the Spirit. We can put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. That's the saying the same thing. To, to be led by the Spirit is to put those things to death, to be in accordance with the Spirit, to be working with the Spirit. But here's something that we haven't really had a chance to explore. Because God has justified you, because he's filled you with his Spirit, what that means is you are now a son of God. You have been adopted. And so that's where, he, where Paul goes with the, the rest of this thought is, if we're led by the Spirit, we're sons of God. And um, I've said this before, I just, it bears repeating because I think it's important for us to not miss. Is that sexist for Paul to say sons of God? Does that exclude women who might be believers? Absolutely, positively not. No way. Um, as a matter of fact, that status of being a son of God levels the playing field. Because what we'll see in the moment is that means both men and women are heirs. And in Hebrew culture, women couldn't inherit. Um, that, was, that was something that was not possible. So for Paul to say that everyone, all who are led by the Spirit, are sons of God, means something very specific. It's not a poor turn of phrase. It means all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God, therefore... If sons, then heirs. They, they stand to inherit. So let's, let's keep going. Verse 15, for, um, again, there's another for, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So that goes back to what he said at the beginning. Um, we're not debtors to the flesh. We didn't inherit a spirit of slavery. If you're in debt, especially in the first century culture, if you were in debt to somebody, you might have to become their slave. Uh, if you can't repay that debt in a reasonable amount of time, then you wind up having to sell yourself into that person's servitude, and they owe you. So what Paul tells us is, you haven't received a spirit of slavery. That, that's why I said at the beginning, when Paul starts that idea, we are debtors, he never says we're debtors to the spirit. We haven't fallen into slavery. Um, we've fallen into something better. We didn't re receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Um, that idea that we were in fear, we've been delivered from fear, and now we're going to fall back into it. I think we have to take 
all that Paul has said before into mind. And remember, the wages of sin is death. Um, what Adam brought through the fall was sin and then death because sin spread to all people. So that is the fear that we had. That was what we might be afraid of. We haven't received that. That's not who we are. And now in verse 15, there's another but, another pivot point. But you haven't received a spirit of slavery to fall into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons. So everyone who is led by the spirit has received the spirit of adoption as sons. And, and what that means is that puts us into a better category than being debtors to the spirit. We've been adopted. And so he says um, that we have received this, this um, adoption as sons because we have the spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Um, there's so much loaded into that little sentence, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Um, one of the things that that could refer to is prayer, and that's what we'll get to next week, is, is talking about prayer, especially prayer in the Spirit. But look at the picture that, that he paints. We have a Spirit that comes into us, and through that Spirit, by that Spirit, we cry, we yell out, we, we pine for, we express a deep desire that God is Abba, Father. Now, why Abba, Father? Why those two words? Um, I think it's very important that he picked those two words. Uh, Abba is him, uh, uh, Aramaic uh, for father. Ab is father in Hebrew. So when, when he picks that phrase, Abba, uh, you've probably heard preachers say in the past, that means daddy. Um, and I don't think that's what it means. I think it means something even more tender, more touching, more base than daddy. Um, it's what we would use the term papa, like, or uh, mama, dada, something like that, a baby who is just incapable of it. All they can do is, is say those, those syllables and repeat them. That's, that's the idea behind Abba. It's this tender child who is longing for the other. So from the Hebrew side, the Aramaic side, we hear Abba. And then from the Greek side, uh, patros, father, uh, patar, that's, that's what the word there is, is, is for father. And, and what's going on is we're not looking to God and yelling out master or uh, not looking to God and yelling out uh, owner or something like that. The relationship that we've had has changed from slave and debtor to son, to yell to a father. So don't forget where we've been through this. Um, in Hebrews 3.10, we saw that, or in Hebrews, Romans 3.10, we saw none is righteous, no, not one. So we start as enemies of God, Romans 5.10, while we were enemies. So that's where we started. That was our initial position. God reconciled us by the death of his son. God reconciled his enemies who were not righteous, who were none were righteous. And so then in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, he says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. So we were in this position where we were not righteous, we were enemies of God, and God decided that he would justify the ungodly. And so how did he do it? He did it by faith. That faith God counted as righteousness. And we saw Abraham as the example of that. So God legally declares us, no longer enemies, no longer unrighteous, no longer 
uh, foes of his, but he makes us, he declares us to be righteous, he justifies us. And what we saw was he doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just say, well, you're still horrible people, but I have declared you to be righteous. He then works in our life to accomplish something. So chapter, or yeah, chapter 6, verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So that idea of sanctification we talked about was God is actually moving us from where we were, that type of person who was unrighteous, who was his enemy. He declares legally righteous, and then he begins the process of moving us into a position where we are his children, where we are more like that. And so what we'll see next week is uh, verse 29, for those who foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of him among many brothers. So put all that together for a second. God takes his enemies. God takes unrighteous, unjust enemies of his, and he doesn't come in and conquer them and subject them to slavery and make them uh, bow down before him in, in humiliation. Instead, what he does is he, he makes them his sons. He, he takes them, he adopts them into his family. And so what we become is we become his children, adopted as sons. And so we look to this conquering king, this, this person who has defeated all of our foes, has defeated even us. And we don't yell out master or great one, exalted leader. We call him Abba. We call him father uh, because his spirit has given us the spirit of adoption. So verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we don't have just Paul's um, uh, statement that this is true. He doesn't just say, well, this is true, and therefore you must believe it. We have the spirit inside us working with us to convince us of the truth that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. So since we have been adopted into God's family, it's not like... Um, we are adopted into his family and then locked in a closet. Um, he's, we're the child that he's ashamed of, or he never really wanted, but he got stuck with. We're heirs. We're heirs with Christ, fellow heirs with Christ. That's a great story. That is a great message that we had been alienated from him, and now he is, through the work of his spirit, he set us free from the slavery that we were in and brought us into be his children. Paul says a similar thing in Galatians chapter 4. So here's, here's how he explains it in, in Galatians 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So you hear the same statement again, the Abba, Father is there again, but notice in, in Galatians 4, he says, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So it's the, the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of God. He's the spirit of righteousness. He's the spirit of adoption. 
He is the spirit of the son. And it's because he is the spirit of the son that we can be co-heirs with Christ. Um, and so here's the question. What are we heirs to? What are we going to inherit? Um, what are we going to get? Back in Romans 4.13, for the promise to Abraham and to his offspring is that he would be heir of the world. That did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. So to Abraham and his offspring, we will be heirs to the world. So what do you get? You get the world. You get everything. So what do you want now that you don't have? Um, you'll get it, but it'll be better. And we'll, sh we'll see that in the next section. We'll see how much better that is. So again, here's the, the chain of thought. This is the fours that I think link up these thoughts. Kind of a good way to sum it up before we get to what do we inherit. Um, so the chain of thought is we are not debtors to the flesh. That's the, the so then. We are not debtors to the flesh. Because for we live by the Spirit. Um, that's how we conduct ourselves. Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. So when we are um, live by the Spirit, we're led by the Spirit, that means that we're sons of God. Therefore, the, the last four, for we are not slaves, but sons. We're not slaves. We're not indebted. So God took his enemies and welcomed him into his family. So what do we get for this? What is our inheritance? That's what the next section says, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of the present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in child, pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. So verse 17 ended, you may have noticed I kind of skipped it. It ended with, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And then verse 18 starts, I consider the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. I think that's one thought, one sentence there. We will suffer with him that we may be glorified with him. The sufferings can't compare to the glory. Uh, suffering then is the link of how do we inherit? How do we go from adopted children to inheritors? Well, we suffer with him. So what does suffer mean? What is, what is Paul talking about when he says we suffer with him? Um, typically, when we think of that, we often think of persecution. Um, that uh, there are um, believers in Syria and in Egypt that ISIS is beheading. Um, in China, their, their churches are being crushed and broken and, and pastors arrested. In North Korea, it's just horrible what they're doing to believers there. And we think that must be what suffering is. Well, that is suffering. And, and it's suffering to a degree that by God's grace, we don't have to face. But does that mean that we don't get the inheritance then because we don't suffer? 
Well, I don't think he means that type of suffering. And, and here's why. When you think of, uh, of early Christianity, the first maybe three centuries, uh, sometimes we can think that it was chronic persecution, that Christians were always and everywhere opposed and arrested and burned at the stake and fed to lions. And the reality of that first three centuries is when oppression came, it was violent. It was, it was horrifying. Um, it was way over the top, but it didn't exist in a chronic state of being. It wasn't that the church was chronically or persecuted by Rome or by the Jews. Um, it, it had its fits and starts. It was, it was bad under some emperors and not bad under others. Uh, so the reality is Paul is not talking about that kind of suffering. So the good news that I have for you this morning is you don't have to go out and find somebody to be mean to you in order to become a, a child of God, in order to inherit um, as a matter of fact, if you go do something obnoxious and somebody opposes you, that's not oppression. That's just you're being a jerk. And so don't do that. That's not what, what's being spoken of here. So what does he mean then by suffering? If it's not, we have to have somebody come and slap us because we're a Christian. Um, what is he talking about suffering? Well, he says that we suffer with him. And, and the key here is, and we'll see this later on in the section, is suffering is essentially what is going on in the world. Um, everybody in the world suffers. It, it's a fallen, it's a broken world. It, it's not functioning the way it's supposed to be. There is all kinds of things that are going wrong in the world. So if you look to the wealthy, well, the wealthy suffer often from isolation or from being unable to trust others or from working 24-7 to maintain that wealth. Um, so they're suffering, although they're doing it in the lap of luxury. Um, the poor suffer because of their need, because they just don't have what they need on a regular basis. The comfortable middle class often don't talk about their suffering, but there is this, this emptiness that they have, this loneliness, this isolation. Um, Henry David Thoreau, 19th century American poet and philosopher, once said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. From the desperate city, you go into the desperate country and have to console yourself with the bravery of minks and muskrats. A stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. What Thoreau is saying, and this is a guy who, went, who, who wrote Walden, where he went out and hid out in the wilderness to kind of figure out what was going on uh, to see what was really important. What he came away with, what he looked back and saw was, Men lead lives of quiet desperation. It doesn't matter what category you're in, rich, middle class, poor, uh, proletariat, bourgeois, um, emperors, rulers. Men lead lives of quiet desperation. So in one sense, there's this emotional suffering that we all go through because we're not satisfied. The world has everything that could be offered and we're not satisfied with it. And there's physical suffering as well. Um, I'm wearing glasses. Um, I, our bodies fall apart and decay and, and break down and don't function forever. Um, I had a wonderful head of hair in high school and, and now it's gone. You got the nice shine going there. Um, our, our bodies fade and so we suffer. So if this is true, if everybody is suffering in some way, um, even the happiest people you see on, on YouTube or the internet, 
Um, what happens when the camera's off? They're, they're still suffering. So how is it that the Christians suffer differently? How is it that we can suffer in a way that would make us heirs? Well, the key word is we, if we suffer with him, if we suffer with Christ, then what we do is we're suffering differently. What the people of the world have is the world promises them all of these things. It, it promises them joy that, that will last forever. It pr promises them adoration of, of everybody. And yet it never fulfills it. It can never fulfill it. And so you, you achieve this and then you, you're happy with it for a while and then it fades because it wasn't really what you wanted. And you achieve the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. The, the world promises these things. The flesh is saying, this will make you happy. This will make you fulfilled. And you grab it and you hold on to it and it's gone. So then what does the Christian do? Well, the Christian is looking not at the things of this world, but beyond. We're looking for something even better. So the world has its beauty. It, it has its, its moments of, of real delight, um, but they're fleeting and they're not going to last. Um, the, the birthday party that you just loved so much and you remember forever, it's gone. It's not coming back. For the Christian, we're not hoping in that. That's, that's not where we're putting our, our hope. We're not looking forward to the next Christmas party that will be better or the next birthday present that will make me happy. Um, we enjoy those things as they come. I mean, they're part of creation, but we're looking for something bigger, something grander. And so what Paul tells us is that we're suffering in this world but that suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. So do you notice where he fixes our eyes? He says, yes, you suffer like everybody else does, but that's not where your eyes are. You're looking at something greater. You're looking at a glory that the world cannot promise. It can't give. It will never meet that. So for us to suffer, is, it could be persecution. Thank God it's not. It, it could be uh, physical illness. It, it could be death in, 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 in horrible ways because of all kinds of things. We suffer with him, though, as we go through this. And so what he tells us um, is that we're looking for something greater. We're looking for that glory that will be revealed in us. The materialist has no hope, no promise, no purpose. So to the materialist, and the materialist, again, is somebody who says, only what can be seen, smelled, tasted, touched, measured is what's real. Um, that anything else doesn't exist. If that's your attitude, then why suffer? There's no point in it. There's no benefit to it because in 80 years, you'll be dust and gone. And what was your suffering for? It was for nothing. And so that's that quiet desperation that I think Thoreau was pointing to is we're looking for something that there just can't be. But the Christian is saying, well, I'm suffering, and my suffering has a purpose. It, it has a reason. There's something that go on, that, that's going on. So in verses 19 and 20, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So here's, here's the point. The creation waits with eager longing. The creation is, we often think of the, the world, right? The globe, the earth that we live on. It's also the body that we inhabit. This is part of creation as well. And so creation 
he means by that in a moment. But here's the important part. Creation was subjected because of him who subjected it. Of him, creation, this isn't just the way it is. Somebody did this. Somebody made it this way on purpose. Adam, in his rebellion, brought in death and destruction. God came along and said, the earth is cursed because of you. So he did it. He did it on purpose. He did it for a reason. And the reason I say he did it on purpose is because it says, because of him. And because indicates there's purpose behind it. Because of him who did it. And how did he do it? He did it in hope. So God cursed the world because of sin, because of rebellion. He cursed it, but he did it in hope. And what Paul says is he did it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So it's in hope that creation will be set free from the bondage of corruption. In other words, not always like it is. Um, because if you think about it, if, if, uh, if you promise this world, this world's not that great. Um, we're using up its resources. It's, you know, it's getting kind of full, that kind of stuff. Uh, Sting, back in 1990, wrote a song, All This Time. And um, he, one of the verses says, Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the earth. Better to be poor than a fat man in the eye of a needle. And as those words were spoken, I swear I heard the old men laughing. What good is this used up world and how could it be worth having? Um, So Sting has mentioned that uh, the poor shall inherit the earth, the meek shall inherit the earth a a couple of times in his song. So I think it bugs him. But he stops and he looks and he goes, well, we're going to inherit this. Why would we want to inherit this place? The good news is we're not going to inherit this place. It's not at least not the way it is now, because in hope, creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption. And so when we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, what we inherit is the world, but we're not going to inherit it as it is. Um, We're going to inherit something even better. So what happens is creation is groaning. It is under this burden. It has borne the, the weight of the curse of our sin. And it's going to be set free. Just like we right now in our bodies, we suffer, we groan, we're we're having a constant war with sin. It's not going to be like this forever. There's a point coming when all of this will be set free. And, And Paul ties those two events, the cosmic event of creation being set free from sin and us together. And that's why he says, um, and to obtain, um, which, which verse is this? I'm sorry, I lost my verse here. Let me find it real quick. Uh, verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what happens is we know that it's all groaning in, together in childbirth, verse 22, verse 23, not only creation, but we ourselves. And what's going on is we ourselves are groaning. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the promise. We groan inwardly, and we await our adoption as sons. So we have the spirit of adoption in us. We cry out, Abba, Father. The adoption paperwork has been filed. It's been approved. We're waiting for the day when dad comes and picks us up. And so now we have the adoption as sons. 
And when that happens, then all sorts of things happen. And, and what that means is, what Paul says at the end of verse 23 is, that adoption is the redemption of our bodies. It's the completion of what God has already begun in us. He's begun by giving us a new spirit, a new heart. He's filled us with his spirit, but he hasn't redeemed our body yet. When our bodies are redeemed, then the, the, um, the adoption is complete. And not only do we change, but it would not be appropriate for these renewed, redeemed bodies to live in a fallen and broken world. So the world changes too. Uh, Jesus did it. He did it for 40 days after the resurrection. He lived in his glorified body on the earth, but he didn't stay, you notice. He left. He went up to heaven waiting for that day when he'll come back and set everything to right. So everything will be made new again. And, and that's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're hoping in. Um, for we know that creation is groaning. So if life is at times unsatisfying, it is. It, it's, it's, even creation itself is not satisfied. Uh, we're groaning in, in pains of childbirth, waiting for that deliverance, that adoption as sons. So we have that first fruit. We have that taste of what's to come. And so as we suffer through this, this experience, this mortal experience that we're having, waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, that's how we know we're adopted. How do we know that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're sons of God? Because we're anticipating, we're looking forward to that greater thing. And so Paul ends the section, verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. When the Bible says hope, uh, I've said this before, it, 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 we got to get this drilled into our heads. When the Bible says hope, the Bible does not mean, well, this probably isn't going to be happening, but it would be nice if it did. What the Bible means by hope is we can't see it right now, but we have the assurance that it's coming. Um, it, it's not probably not going to happen. We have an assurance that it's going to happen. We just can't see it right now. So that's how he hopes how he says it at the end. In this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is hope is seen is not hope. Hope that is seen is reality. It's the hope come true. It's the promise. So what he's telling us is, in this interim time, this moment where we are no longer slaves to the, the flesh, we've been set free, we're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of promise, we're crying out, Abba, Father, but the adoption hasn't completed yet. It, it's not finished. That's the place that we're in. This is the suffering that we're, we're laboring through. And so this is the, the, the way that we wage that war against the sin that shows up every once in a while is with this tremendous promise that waits in front of us. So what is it in the world that you love the most? Um, what thing is it? Now imagine that thing renewed and made right and no longer subject to corruption and decay and falling apart. Whatever that thing is, in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be made new and better than we could possibly imagine. And that's what our hope is. That's where we're looking. That's how we continue to struggle to fight the battle that lays before us. That's how we keep looking to the spirit. That's how we put to death the deeds of the body in the spirit, is with hope in the promise. And that's, that's our, our future. That's what lays before us. That's what we stand to inherit. Um, and, and what does a child do to inherit? they get born. That, that's pretty much it. At the right time, as Paul said in Galatians 4, at the right time, 
the Father will give us our inheritance, and it will be delightful. It will be this world. But look at Revelation 21. It's not just this world. It's this world, and we're pictured as the New Jerusalem come down from heaven to this world that's been renewed, made, made set free from sin and death and decay. And what's right in the middle of us? No temple, no curtain, no altar, no Ark of the Covenant. What's right in the middle of us is God the Father and God the Son, and they are the light of the people. And so we get this world, but we get this world as it was intended to be the place where God and man dwell together. And, and so when we yell, Abba, Father, we can look to our Father, and he can call us up and say, come and sit with me. Um, come and, and let me tell you a story. Let me tell you how I redeemed a people. He, he can do those things because we will be delivered from sin, from that bondage, and we will be with him for eternity. That's the promise. That's the hope that we have. And with that, we wear, wage the war. That's how we suffer with him. That's, that's what we're going to do to make it to the end. And so that's the message that, that gives us the hope. Now we'll continue next week. And what we'll start with is, is prayer. And what'll be good to see is how prayer connects with hope and, and a spirit of adoption. So with that, let's, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the glimpse of the future that you give us. And Lord, I thank you that it is our biblical hope something that is assured, rock solid in the future. We just haven't arrived yet. And so, Father, in the meantime, as we struggle, as we wander, as we, we, we come and we go, as we have good days and bad days, as we suffer with Christ, Lord, would you remind us of our adoption? Would you remind us of that which lays ahead and the great promise that we have? And I pray, Lord, that we would behave as children of God who stand to inherit all things. Lord, fill us with a desire for that. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.